Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. March 3rd, 2024, episode 241, the new model. Hello and welcome into the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm your host, Kevin England. It is a gorgeous Sunday afternoon, and I am just sitting down to record the intro after having been outside for a period of time, doing different domestic tasks that are here when the weather breaks. One of those things that I did was sneak out into the bee yard and check on the bees to see how everybody's flying. A funny thing to share is that there's still a pile of snow sitting in the driveway, even though it's 60 degrees today, and it's t-shirt weather. It reminds me that the weather has just broke. Is that the way to say it? And even though we have an unseasonably warm day, Sharon and I have been joking about when this final vestige of snow is going to melt. For me, though, I look at the forecast and say, today's the day. If your hives made it through to this date, you're good. We will not have cold weather that would be a detriment to anything that is going to cause strife for a hive that has overwintered. That's just the way I look at it. I was wondering if all of the six hives that were there a couple weeks ago would make it through to this day, and they did. So six out of 12 in the home yard, And I'm happy to report 3 out of 3 for the Valley Crest Yard, which makes 9 out of 15. Plenty of bees to get the season going. I'm a bit of a wuss when it comes to cold weather. Don't particularly love to be out in the garage. And so now that the weather breaks, it turns my brain to a huge list of things I want to do in advance of the season. And I'm hoping you're thinking that way too. If you're brand new and just about getting ready to start, then maybe today's the day you're out scouting your property to see where you're going to put your bees and get your apiary ready to go and whatever that is. If you want some guidance, head over to managedmentoring.com. Look in the beginning year, beginning lessons that tell you a little bit about that. You can get some tips and tricks there. Yeah, I am... uh, Running on my 3 p.m. coffee. I have a little bit of motor mouth. But I guess I should get to the business at hand and tell you a little bit about the agenda. So roundtable number one, the new model. I'm going to share some thoughts about keeping fresh queens. It's something that struck me after the discussion with my twin brother Keith in the last episode. Roundtable number two, a follow-up to repeated oxalic acid vaporizations with brood present oh a any day it seems this was a topic that was interesting as uh, i get quite a bit of feedback on this and additional feedback i wanted to respond to round table number three after a decade of keeping bees i talked about this a few years ago we pulled the trigger and purchased an extractor Other than talking about the purchase, I haven't mentioned much about it, and listener Bob Muller wrote in to ask, how's it going? How do we like the machine? And since Sharon is the principal user at processing our honey, 
had a little sit-down with her and asked her what she thought. Round table number four. I'm a little off my rocker sometimes, but I think you know that. I was up and at him early this morning, and I'm going to tell you what I was doing. Round table number five. If you're a new beekeeper or a veteran, maybe you have some plans to plant some plants this spring. I have a resource to share to get you underway and some advice and guidance. For the back of the book, the topic for this episode is a run-through of listener mail, and I have a few closing comments to throw on the pile to round things out. So let's turn the corner for a quick message, and then we'll head into the show. This episode is being brought to you by ManageMentoring.com. If you're a new beekeeper starting out, we want to make you aware of a valuable resource that will fill in the gaps when it comes to learning how to become a competent beekeeper. The Managed Mentoring Program is a program that I developed for use from my local beekeepers association in New Jersey. It was designed and developed to support our local beekeepers and now it's widely available to you. You know, beginner beekeeper courses are recommended and very useful. They provide a good foundation to help you get going. In time, however, you will come to learn that the craft of beekeeping requires more depth of understanding. The Managed Mentoring Program provides you with key information to support your first two years in beekeeping so that you don't have to struggle. Organized into small, snackable lessons, the instruction is time to follow you through your beekeeping activity for the first two years and give you the confidence to start your journey and make your way all the way to feeling comfortable about how you're managing your bees. The program's totally free. There will never be a cost to participate, and it's a program that I created because I know what it's like to struggle to find the answers to complications and unanswered questions that you'll encounter along the way. Managementoring.com, visit the website, browse through the first year program if you're new, and if you like what you see, Feel free to watch the instruction videos and sign up through the Start Here link on the main menu. Managementoring for getting started in beekeeping. Roundtable number one. Call this one the new model. Just a quick programming note. While I'm recording this, it was a thought that I'm having at the moment. I'm driving home from work. And it's raining. You can probably hear the pitter-patter on the windshield. And I'm recording it from my AirPods through the phone. And so if the quality's off, so be it. But it was something that I had to capture in the moment because while I was walking out from work, it was rattling around in my brain, and I thought, no better time than the present. So if this sounds a little off, forgive me, but here goes. You know, for years I listened to different people talk about the beekeeping operations, and one of the things you do is you just pick up these little morsels. And eventually you take all these morsels and you put them together and you form some kind of hypothesis or conclusion or, better said, an idea or construct of a way to behave. To stop being so... What? Mysterious about this. Let me give you a couple of those morsels and then I'll put it all together for you. The first one is something my brother said the other day. 
in the podcast we recorded for Keith Mullen, we had this short little exchange about replacing his queens and my insistence to him that it would be in his best interest, given the number of years his queens have been in service, whether they're swarm queens or not, for him to put in a new, young, vigorous queen. And he rightfully balked at that, because that is what I think most hobbyist beekeepers would say. You don't need to replace your queen. In fact, I was of that mind myself. I go to EAS and other conferences. I hear commercial people speak, and I hear, say, a Grant Stiles, although I don't know that he does this, talk about they requeen their operation every year. And I always thought, well, what was the premise of requeening your operation? For them, if you're taking your bees to pollination, one example, you want to make sure that when the box lands at the pollination site, it has X number of frames as required by the pollination contract of bees. What's the best way to do that? You need a young gal a vigorous young queen that's well-mated, and she will guarantee that you're not rolling in and unloading pallets off of the truck with some duds. And so when you're in a commercial operation, you're not doing, I, I perceive this is how it works, and I know there's no universal answer to this, but they do their own queen stuff, or they have deals. They're not paying $40 for a new queen. They're getting queens that are worth the investment at a lower price in bulk and so on. And their workers can go in, find a queen, pinch it, wait whatever the requisite time is, and insert a laying queen in there post-haste and mission accomplished. And my guess is, at about this time, all around the world... <laughs> You know, where people are starting to do their spring management, that's going on, especially in a lot of commercial operations. But when do hobbyist beekeepers do this? Now, if you're somebody that does queen rearing, then maybe you've uh, entered into this. And this is what I want to talk about. If you drove an older car, and I was having this conversation recently with somebody that I work with. They just replaced their unreliable car with a new car. And in some respects, and I could appreciate this, they had a love for the old car. It was familiar, like a nice baseball glove. It fit well. It ran well. And until it starts to cause you problems, you really don't see any need to move on. But the aha moment for this person is when they got in the new car. And yes, it took a little bit to figure out the sight lines and the views and the brakes and all the different things, the power band. They eventually came to the point where this is their car now. Upgrade. When you look at that on the surface, you're like, that's the natural evolution of things. But I want to draw the analogy to beekeeping about replacing your queen. Because if you think about the old car that she was driving, it had airbags. 
and it had some features for safety, but it was 10 years old. And at 10 years old, it was lacking many of the substructures that we come to appreciate and maybe we don't even know about in a new modern car. Compare a crash test from a car that's 10 years old to a car of today and it will be considerably different. The engineering for the collapse zones and the way that they set things up is it improves every year. If you look at the safety ratings of cars of today compared to cars of yesteryear, they're night and day. And you only need to ask a rescue squad person who's doing extrication on a serious motor vehicle accident how much better the cars are for today. But it's the other features, the side curtain airbags, the sensors in the front bumper that stop the car so you don't crash into the person. The lane assist that keeps you from being inattentive and going across the line when you shouldn't be answering that text and all of those things. Yeah, evolution creates a better beast. And when you come to appreciate all those features, you look at somebody who's driving an older car, and while you can grasp the rationale of why they might be doing that, you also understand, in the grand scheme of things, they're missing out on that. Now, turning to requeening your hive, the evolution of what the queen deals with is pretty darn amazing, especially from an immunity standpoint. If something comes through, from what the researchers say, and causes strife to the colony, and the queen can adapt to adjust the progeny on the fly, which she can, that means that she can correct the situation by laying eggs, and they don't understand this, how this happens, that can address the new survivor. And it happens with the generations of drones and workers and so on that emerge that, you know, pass the genetics. Primarily it comes from the queen, but it also comes from the drones. And so I've been really loose and fast with that, but take it for what it's worth. The underlying genetic makeup of a colony changes frequently. And it changes with every release of 21 days, new worker, 21 day, new worker, 21 day, as the queen progresses. It happens in the natural subsystem of reproduction for the queen as she lays. And so from that perspective, a queen that's three years old, the viruses that they dealt with, maybe the new pesticides that are in the world, the different plant materials that may or may not challenge the colony, the newbies are encountering it, and the old ones don't have the equipment they need to deal with it. Now again, I know I'm being lucid fast, but somewhere along the line, my spidey sense tells me that you're better off. First, there's, there is something. I don't know what it is. And this might be wishful thinking, wishes and kisses. But I think that when you constantly replace your queen with a new queen, 
and don't run with the old model, that you might actually be better off because each time you replace the queen, you're fast forwarding to the new model. And so isn't that an interesting idea? And I, I'm just, again, this is just a thought that came up and a belief that I've seen over the years. I never bought into, you need to replace your queens every year. But when we started to rear queens and put new queens in the box, in the same manner that we started to replace the comb when it got old and latched on to that, which again is another recommendation, the colony's healthier, the colony's stronger, the colony produces better, and I think the survival of the colony is going to be better suited because of these things. Am I right? I really don't know. I don't know. It's just a belief that I have, and for a period of time, wherever I can, I'm going to replace my queens, because one, we're rearing queens, and it's not hard to have a whole bumper crop and put a new one in, and why wouldn't you? And two, I think, just anecdotally, looking at the way our colonies have been doing, that the fresh comb and the younger queens have been paying off. And then there's the every time you hear it commentary that people say they do this and on the whole they're benefiting from it. And as I talk to beekeepers here and there, I have this conversation and I say, well, what do you think? I get generally favorable ideas for people who do this. They, they do say that they agree. And, you know, the thing that I should say is I read and I talk and I hear, but I try not to steer the witness, Your Honor. I have a conversation sitting at a bench in EAS with so-and-so. Maybe it's Michael Palmer and say, hey, Mike, what, what do you think of this idea? And they'll share their opinion. I didn't say my belief is. Somewhere along the line, I might share it and you know, if they didn't go down that path, I might say it and have that conversation with Michael and then ask him what he thinks because he didn't go there. But, you know, I get on this bent and Bob Kloss is sick of me <laughs> when I do this. I have certain fundamental tenets that I try to test all over the place. Once I latch on to something, I'm constantly seeking an answer to do you believe it? How many times have you heard on this program me talk about the supreme hive. I believe that when colonies get beyond a certain thing, and so there are times when I just, I ask people, how'd your colonies make out? And somebody say, well, I had a really big colony. It didn't do well. Oh, hmm, that's interesting. So maybe you be on the lookout for this and see what you think as you evaluate this. And I just thought that I'd say this out loud, like I do occasionally on this program, just to test the waters and see if maybe you go have that conversation with people in a, you know, don't lead the witness. Don't, don't tell them what you're talking about. Just ask in a casual manner. Do you think that requeening a colony is any benefit? See what they say. It's an interesting thing to explore. Round table number two, call us when maintain threshold. For this roundtable, I want to come back to the feature from the episode OANED. 
Specifically, I want to expand on something related to the use of oxalic acid in a broader context. Listener Jeff Teeland wrote in after hearing the segment, which spoke of the premise of using oxalic acid during the times where colonies were rearing brood. He wanted to know if I've ever come across the work from Jennifer Berry on the topic. The first thing to say is, thanks Jeff for sharing that. Yes, I was familiar with the research that Jennifer reported. I read it when it came out. And I've also heard different summations of what Jennifer reported. Most notably, Cameron Jack referenced the conclusion of what Jennifer had to say. To the point of returning to the original conversation, it's interesting to consider a particularly important finding from Jennifer's work. And I recall Cameron emphasizing this when he was sharing what he took away from what Jennifer reported. There were two key points in Jennifer's research findings. The first one was persistent application of oxalic acid when a colony is rearing brood does not have any material impact on treating varroa infestations. Let me say that in a way you understand the context of what I mean. If you have a high varroa mite infestation and you use a common mite treatment, say Formic Pro, you will see a significant correction in the form of a mite knockdown. If the threshold after monitoring was high, and you are looking to take the mite population to a threshold that is below what is acceptable, Formic Pro, Apivar, Apigard, and other products are going to do that. Jennifer's finding was that repeated OAV applications would not do that. They would not yield a mite knockdown. The research found that, quote, treated colonies remained at the same PMI after treatment as before, end quote. To suss that out, you need to know what PMI means. In layperson's terms, the PMI, which represents the concept of percent mite intensity, is akin to the ratio of mites within the colony population. When the team in Georgia did their study, they took the time to assess the number of mites present and also correlated that to the size of the colony. As with any well-conducted study, they operated controls. The contrast finding for the control, which did not get vaporized, obviously, is, quote, a typical control colony showed an increased PMI of 4.4, end quote. Again, to expand on what that means in comparison, they found the control colony mite population growing at a 4.4, while vaporized colonies were showing mite level dropping 7 tenths of a percent. 3.8. Normal mites were ramping up, and vaporized hives were paramount to going down just a smidge on the growth curve. Now, how can we put that to use? Well, the interesting distinction 
if you have a mite population that's in check and you proactively conduct OAV applications, the persistent applications, even in periods where brood is being reared, may serve to slow down or reverse ever so slightly the mites. And if you were under the threshold to begin with, that might prove to be the tactic you could use in your program design. Now again, it's not going to do that bang-bang knockout punch, but if you keep your mite thresholds low, you could use this as part of a treatment regime where bees are being reared. I know a handful of beekeepers who use oxalic acid in the beginning of the year when bees are mostly broodless to take the mites down at the beginning of the season. Then, tactically, while they have mite levels below threshold, they use vaporizations to keep the mites in check and as the colony develops for the season, they hold those levels. I cannot say that anyone has told me that this practice works to keep mites from growing to critical mass. But they do express that it keeps the populations from seeing this growth curve that would be typical sans vaporization. One beekeeper I know, not too long ago, said that they are going to combine vaporizations with an early summer Formic Pro blast, and they're hoping that this approach is just going to suffice as a yearly approach. I'm eager to hear how that turns out. As I know they've been doing vaporizations for the past few seasons, and it's worked well for them, especially when it comes to looking at survivability of their bees and their apiary. Now there's one other point that was expressed in Jennifer's research, of which, of course, I will have a link to in the show notes. The research team findings seem to indicate that as far as the colony operation was concerned, there did not appear to be any harm to the vaporized honeybees when compared to the controls. The research paper summed up the impact to individual bees and resources in the hive using this statement, quote, We observed that multiple treatments vaporizing with OA had no significant effects on overall A. mellifera adult bees brewed or stored honey quantity, end quote. To understand the context of that, you need to know exactly what they did to the hives. This study design was well documented. I'm going to forego conveying all the gory details. Instead, I'm just going to sum it up. They used an Oxivap vaporizer, and they administered one gram doses every five days for seven intervals. They chose this cadence so it seems, based upon the biology of the workers and drones, and it seems a bit on what they know people were doing in the wild. What I mean by that is if you look at what people are doing as a general construct, general beekeepers, many are going to tell you that they do treatments on a five to seven day rotation. That does not mean this is a recommendation or people do it differently as a practice, 
But it's also not unreasonable to hear these five to seven day windows as like a rule of thumb. If you went today out to the interwebs and researched, I'm going to oxalic acid every couple weeks for a period, almost all of it would tell you five to seven days. Now, like I said in the last segment, there are quite a few considerations and unknowns. Recent work, specifically Cameron Jack's work, has led him to petition the government to up the, up the dose. Yeah, easy for me to say. Jennifer tested with the accepted norm of one gram. Jack, who has an experimental license to do this, somewhat said when he tested two to four grams seemed to be more effective in the experimental setting And he has discussion going on with the government to see if the grams should be increased. By the way, to be clear, the law is set at one gram. And any more than that, you're overdosing the bees and against the legal labeled application rate stipulated by the government. Yeah, just saying. So we always must take... All of this excellent work that the researchers give us with a grain of salt. And here's what I mean, and that that doesn't mean I don't trust it. It means in a different context. For example, the research was conducted in Georgia. By example, I happen to live in New Jersey. We know our climates differ. And what happened in Georgia in that study may not be the same if it was conducted here in New Jersey. As a remark, Jennifer shared that sentiment when she tried to recreate Randy Oliver's shop towel experiment in Georgia, and it didn't turn out the same as the experiments Randy did in California. We can also explore implications considering upping the dose. Hmm. If the dose were doubled or move to four grams, as some would like to see happen, would the results proffered by Jennifer still hold true? And we need to keep in mind that Jennifer's study employed around 100 hives per the study design over the course of three years. That's better than a backyard three-hive assertion that something works which is why I'm always careful in sharing what I talk about. Always keep in mind that I only have a handful of hives. And 100 hives is decent, but yeah, an admirable number. But sometimes things don't net out the same when employed in a wider breadth and across many geographical and temperate regions. Imagine if this is adopted as a general practice across the land. It might not turn out the same. Bless the research. It's enough to give you a headache trying to consider all the outcomes that you are trying to test for. To conclude this discussion, I want to share what the research offered as the recommendation. Quote, Based on our results, we do not recommend employing this method for controlling V-destructor when brood or present especially as a summer or fall treatment option when infestation levels are at or above treatment threshold in an IPM framework, end quote. As to my conclusion, 
I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. I still think that beekeepers are going to look at all the angles of this practice and consider their options. Real world beekeepers are doing their version of citizen science now that vaporizers are becoming more commonplace in the marketplace, which is what OA Any Day was about. Note, I did not say proper citizen science because on the whole, some of it seems to be a little sketchy. But I know there are some people doing interesting work out there, and they're going to share what they think is happening. While they might be off the reservation, I for one think I will keep looking at what they are sharing and see what it is they're learning. In the end, I'm going to express my thanks to Jeff for the email and appreciation to the Georgia team. Jennifer Berry, as well as Lewis Bartlett, Selena Bruckner, Christian Baker, Chris Brahman, Keith Delaplane, and Jeffrey Williams. Those names are in that research article, and they deserve our thanks for giving us research-based information to work with. Look for a note. Assessing repeated oxalic acid vaporizations in honeybee, Hymenoptera apidae, colonies for control of the ectoparasite might Varroa Destructor in the show notes. Round table number three. You spin me right round. I think somewhere along the line I've used that before. Knowing my makeup. But you know what? We're going to go with it. I get to do one of my favorite things, which is play you recording. That includes Sharon and I having a chit-chat. I'm not going to say anything further than that. Just go ahead and play the recording that we made that morning. So a listener wrote in and made a comment to me that I never seem to talk about the extractor that we purchased. I'm standing here with Sharon and I wanted to record a segment, but you're the one that uses the thing the most. I've used it a couple times and uh, what I wanted to ask you is let's just run through things we know about the machine and give listeners, um, you know, kind of a sense of what it is. So the first thing, it's an upgrade. We used a Maxent one that we got from the club for years. And it was a really nice machine, not a problem. But we upscaled to a 20-frame Lysen extractor. There's two versions of this extractor, a low version and a high version. The high version is a little more commercial-grade, We didn't need that for our small operation. One of the reasons we switched to a bigger extractor is we wanted the ability to do more frames. And one of the things that I particularly liked about this Lyson machine is that the motor is under the basket, which is a plus and a minus in some respects, and we'll we'll get to that. But I like the fact that the top of the machine is open. And that makes it a little easier to load in the frames. So you're the one who uses this more often. Give your general impression about, first off, loading machine and how it runs. Any commentary? Just the, just the general size of it makes it a lot easier to load the frames in. It's bigger, holds more. It's just so much easier. You could go from either side... You know, one side is supposed to be screwed down, but we I take it off, undo it, and I use both sides to load it. 
So it is a center rib across the top with hinges and it has two half moons that can open and you're right. One of yeah, the first things we clear did plexiglass so you could see through it. Was take that screw out so that we can open both sides. Yeah. And we have a way to close it. I, yes. I forget what we did, but so talk about the the old machine, the Maxent that we used, was pretty powerful. When you turned it on it it went, you know, yeah, it, from decent to kill. <laughs> this one seems to have a different power band. The motor starts slower, and you have more control to the top, and when you want to spin this thing, it'll... Yeah, and it just makes a smoother uh, spin, I think. You know, less wobble. There still is wobble. You still have to balance it a little bit, but like you said, you have more control over the you know, lower speed versus the medium speed versus a higher speed. Um, so that just helps balance it faster. I do like to stand on it to hold the wobble at the beginning until it balances out. That's just me. Um, well, let's talk about the, the actual extractor came with the feet screwed to a pallet. That's how they shipped it. And forward. I took the pallet and cut the pallet down to a small square, but I left it underneath, which seemed really odd, but it serves two purposes for us. One, I could put a hand cart underneath it and pick it up from the bottom of the pallet and move it around in the garage. That, that's, right? that's what I like And then you about like it. the fact that it's actually anchored, which holds the thing steady when you're using it. And I see you get up and give the machine a hook and stand on the pallet. <laughs> I do. I stand on the pallet and kind of hold the machine down. Hey, that's how my friend Bob taught me. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things Thanks, Bob Kloss. One of the things that's uh, interesting about that is we talked about the power band. As you ramp it up and it spins out the honey, you always get one frame that's heavier than the others and it gets that wobble. But this thing, from comparison to the other machines, seems to... Clear that up quicker, mm -hmm. right? And then everything gets in equilibrium and you can step off and run the machine. Yes. Let's talk about the other parts of the design that you do and don't like. You've always desired, and one thing that I don't think any machine has hit on yet, is to have the port at the bottom. I don't know why you wouldn't have the port at the bottom. There must be some design thing about it because when, you, when you're extracting... A little bit of honey you're not going to get it doesn't reach up to the spout to even come out so you got to tilt the whole machine so using the pallet that's it's attached to I tilt it up and I put like a block yeah. eight, eight by so, eight block of wood or something under it so the spout is on the side of the machine instead of the bottom yes and the bottom has a slight concave to it and the honey collects at the bottom and when you're spinning Frame after frame after frame, it's fine. It comes up, it goes out the spout, and it goes into the bucket. Hello? Hi. Good morning. Hi, honey. How are you? We just took a phone call, and we kind of got interrupted. So if we repeat something, forgive us. We're picking back up with... The shape of the basket, you want the port to be on the bottom. And one of the things that, you know, if you 
have a lot of honey you're extracting, then it's no big deal. But if you're only doing a little bit, it, it gets stuck in the bottom. And you could use the palette we have. I set it so that when you flip the thing forward, it kind of hinges up on the bottom of the palette and it puts the port down. And you said you prop the thing up. Yeah, after after you spin it, and you're st it's still the honey's still draining, then I take a block of wood, like an eight by eight or something like that, and I stick it under the one side so it pours out the valve into the bucket. Talk about cleaning the machine. So I don't like to take the basket off. It's just an extra step for me. Um. With the honey, I take my rubber spatula and I just scrape down the sides. I think most people do that. Get the honey pushed down. Um, with this big machine, it's a lot easier than the, the smaller one, just because my arm fits in there better with the spatula. And then when I go to clean it, I can... I use the hose. I just use a hose and I run my hand on every piece of metal on the basket just to make sure there's no wax or anything stuck on it. I'm pretty meticulous about that. And it's a lot easier to get my hand down the sides and into the down in the basket um, because of the bigger machine. And the motor's not on top and you can open both sides. And... Yes. And I use the Talk about your magic spatula. Hand cart. Okay. Yeah, I use the hand cart to take the extractor outside and the pallet is really helps with that. Otherwise, it would be kind of a pain in the neck because it's only got like three legs or something, three skinny legs. So the pallet is a huge help to move the extractor around. It's big. It's kind of awkward, but... It's a little heavy. The motor is pretty heavy duty. Mm-hmm. But, it, but I wanted you to talk about your magic spatula. This was a discovery that you made somewhere along the line that... I don't even know where we got this rubber spatula. It's a KitchenAid, I believe, brand. And it's sort of has a curve to it. And it's so nice and flexible and yet stiff enough that you... I use it all the time for honey. Pushing down the sides or scraping out a, a bowl or... Whatever I'm working on, crushing strain, and I gotta scrape the sides of a pot or whatever I'm using to strain the honey into. Um, it were it's amazing. This particular tool. In fact, we should probably try to find another one, <laughs> just in case. Like the magic spatula. Yes. This year is the year of the spatula. Spatula. Yes. Uh, there's a cookie spatula made by Oxo Good Grip Cookie, and it's silicone, and it's the perfect spatula for a small frying pan and ours had a, a cut in it and it was time to replace it and this year we bought another one so that's why we're saying it's the year of the spatula one of the things you talked about was um, the the storage of it you I've seen you clean the thing and it looks like it came from the, the factory every time we put it away. Mm -hmm. And then you cover it. How do you... I'm very meticulous, like I said, about cleaning it out. Clean it, clean it with the hose, run my hand over every 
inch of the whole thing inside. Make sure there's no. You're just spraying it with the garden. Hose. That's it. Just the garden hose. It's no. There's no temperature control on our hose. It doesn't get hot. It's just I spray it. It's the force and the rinsing action. The force of the hose and the rinsing action that sprays all the wax. Gets all the wax and honey off. You could let the bees take it. I guess a lot of people do, but for us, they end up drinking the honey water. I guess. <laughs> that well, gets you did. Out. You did leave it out there for the bees, and they go in the ports and the holes, and they get all the little sips that. You think you have it a hundred percent clean, and they still find little bits. Yeah. They it, find a little dot of honey. So we're off. recording this in February. We've not done extracting since last summer, but you s leave it sitting in the garage, and it's covered with. Yeah. Um, before I put the lid on it and put it away, I make sure it's 100% dry. Whether I leave it out in the sun or in the garage, I have this uh, special uh, cloth, yeah, micro microfiber cloth I use. I dry it and make sure there's no lint in it. And then I we store it in the garage, push it up against the wall. And I put a sheet over. I have an old sheet just covering it just to protect it and keep the dust and keep it clean. Um, actually, I have a garbage bag over it first. And then I have a sheet over it. Talk, talk about the basket design and putting the frames in. It's different than the other one. The other one seemed to hold the frames a little tighter. This one, they just kind of set in there and centrifugal force holds them yeah, in place. Yeah, in fact, sometimes they... they fall out if it, when you're before you spin it they kind of like tilt forward so you just got to kind of lean them back the best you can and and then once it gets going it's fine anything else about the machine the one thing we've not talked about is maintenance we've done no maintenance to it we've had it since 2021 you can so one of the things i know about these machines there's lubrication in the pivot point where the basket sits down inside the motor and everything is completely sealed this bears reference i should go look up and see if there's anything recommended but if you take the basket out of the max ant machine for example and you spray and clean it you wash away the lubrication and they say before you put the basket back in you should re-lubricate it with the right lubrication so it prevents friction and wear. Yes, we should probably. So you don't take the basket out, and then you're okay because it's kind of sealed down in there, and the same is true, I believe, for our machine. But at some point, maybe this season, before you get started, we should go look that up and see. I know that the Maxent one had a specific <laughs> lubricant that the club used to send with us, because some people like to take the basket out because it was harder to clean. One more thing about the cleaning of it is the control box, the controlled knob that you use to turn it on and turn the speed up. It's a, it's a box. It's a big box with yeah. a digital readout and emergency stop. When I go to clean, hose it all down, I cover that with a uh, grocery store plastic bag and rubber band that on so I don't get any water in that. So we talked about the emergency stop button. It's a weird feature that the other one didn't have. Talk about using that. Yeah, you think why would you need that? But when you're, when you're, you know, when you're spinning the honey, 
sometimes your bucket wiggles wiggles away or over or the strainer if you're using this strainer right there on the bucket it gets filled up and it's about to overflow you want to stop the machine so it has this red button that's an emergency stop and all you have to do is push that emergency the big red button just push it and it stops it's it's actually kind of a nice feature i've used it a few times for that purpose yeah so all in all i think this machine has been as we get to know it it's only been a couple of seasons it's been a really nice machine to your point the only really one thing from a design standpoint is putting the gate lower the gate has that metal cover Mm-hmm. You said you didn't really love that very much, the way this gate works. That's what I remember you telling me. But yeah. It has a stainless steel tube with a stainless steel cover that hinges, and you just pull it closed. And I don't remember what it was, but I seem to recall you telling me. You're looking at me with a... I don't, <laughs> I don't remember what it was either. I have to... Yeah, but all in all, I you. think the machine has has been just a... A really one thing that I know and you had said to me before is you could process one whole medium at a time yes and that was something different from before um, yeah it holds 20 frames sorry yeah, you could so do two. two whole mediums so you think it's taking a long time to cut the cappings off and fill the machine because you're going through 20 frames. You know, we do all that by hand. We don't use a machine or anything. Um, so it feels like it's taking a long time to get to 20. But once you get to 20 and you start the machine, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. I, I remember you commenting to me how fast it went. It yes. actually improves it. For some reason, just the workflow of loading that yes. two boxes. Yes. Gives you less time in the garage when we're harvesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's it. I can't think of anything else as I think through the machine that we could comment on. But all in all, happy with the purchase. Very happy. It seems like a quality, like one of those good, heavy-duty quality machines. Yeah, it's, you know, we originally started with somebody gave us one of those... Gal- galvanized, galvanized hand, hand crank <laughs> extractor. <laughs> We've and we did way. use it, but we did. I don't think we were supposed to because of the galvanized metal. Well, what do we know? Well, we didn't then. know back then. We only used it for a couple of seasons. Yeah. yeah. And theoretically, if you used it all the time, it could cause a problem. But if you used it occasionally, it probably wasn't that big of a deal. But we've come a long way with this extractor. And quite frankly, um, you know, as it sits a couple of years in, it, it was worth the purchase. It's so nice to have our own. It's so nice to make sure that when you clean it and it's ready to go next time, there's not knobs missing, things aren't broken. It's our machine. It's clean and ready to go. Yep. Clean and ready there's to no, go. Nothing in it, no bugs, no drips of honey. Yeah, when we used the club extractor, most of the people were really, really good about making it ready for the next one. But sometimes people just didn't have the experience or understand that. Coffee's done. Be covered in like honey and wax it, on the outside of the machine, it, really sticky. Yeah. So I spent time also wiping everything down multiple times. Yeah, now you had to clean it before you use it yes. and then clean it yes. to give it away for the next one, which just part of the thing, but it, it is nice to have our own machine. So 
It is. All right. Thanks for taking the moment to uh, run this through while we're having breakfast. Yes. Very nice. Roundtable number four, I call this one Cold Feet. As I record this, it's about 5.20 in the morning on Sunday and my feet are absolutely freezing. I've been standing in the back workshop on the cold concrete floor without any shoes on. What, pray tell, am I doing at 5 in the morning? I'm rendering beeswax. As mentioned in previous shows, we have a bunch of errant beeswax in zip-top bags after it was melted down in our solar wax melter. Our solar wax melter, it's something we use every summer. We take any errant scrap of beeswax that we can find and place it in the box and use that to render it into temporary aluminum pans that would be used for holding a sterno device. I'm not sure how much I've spoken about this in the past, but when we started beekeeping, we used to use a styrofoam cooler. Kevin moment. Oops. Did I push a button? Hold on a sec. Okay, yes, I did. I spoke to Sharon a moment ago and she asked me to push a button on the coffee maker. And then it came downstairs and did a couple of things. And then came down here with this idea rattling through my head. I'll explain in a moment what that was about. But she asked me to push a button on the coffee maker and I didn't remember whether I did it or not. End of Kevin moment. Uh, yeah, styrofoam cooler. <laughs> Such a simple device. You use a simple, cheap, $5 styrofoam cooler and you place a piece of Tupperware in there that you cut the bottom out of and you layer some paper towels in it and you put your wax in there and nestle it down in. Now, of course, underneath you want a container, second Tupperware container, and you put some water in that. Then you put that out in your driveway or somewhere outside where it can get into full sun and you cover it with a piece of glass. The heat coming through or the heat trapped underneath the glass will melt the wax. It floats down through the paper towel and drips into the Tupperware down below which has water in it and it collects on the top and then you pull it out, let it dry off and you have rendered clean beeswax. It's a cheap, inexpensive and simple way to render wax. You could build one of these for like five, ten bucks. But over time, we had so much wax that it, the device just didn't produce enough capacity for us. And so I went into the workshop and built a specific wax melter, solar wax melter. In my true nature, I was driving home from work one day and saw a window that somebody had taken out of their home. It was laying against a telephone pole. They were throwing it out. And that's the window that I used to inform how big the box was going to be. And, you know, I mounted the box <laughs> on an old wheelchair. And every summer, we roll the box out into our driveway and place wax in it and let the sun do its thing. So the reason, coming back to the Kevin moment, I went upstairs is I had a bag of rendered wax that we had filtered, Sharon held me a little bit, and transformed by pouring into silicone molds used for soap making. 
I wanted to know how much that gallon bag of wax blocks weighed so I could talk about it here. It turns out it was spot on for eight pounds. So all in all, I just completed rendering 24 pounds of clean wax. And that doesn't include the wax that I rendered into tapered candles, which I spoke about on the previous episode. Now, the reason I have cold feet is that I just melted the last batch that needs to be transformed and was pouring it through a t-shirt filter and rendering it into the soap silicone molds. I have an electric hot plate set up on my bench with a large stock pot filled with water, cranked it up to medium, and placed inside of it a smaller stock pot that was used to melt the wax from the solar wax melter into liquid form. I then poured the wax as it melted into a t-shirt filter. Just used a rubber band to put a piece of old t-shirt over top. And I have a metal pitcher that holds about three quarters of a gallon would be my guess. The solar wax melter does an amazing job at filtering out all the debris. But if you don't pay attention to it, some of the debris floats down and drips off into the pan. So yeah, some of the wax is dirty. If we did a better job at that, we could probably just use that and melt it and pour it into the molds. One thing that I'll share about performing the filtering work and the max, max weltering, I do that every time I talk about wax, wax melting, is as you move along with every encounter, you learn a handful of things on how to conduct the operation. For example, as you're pouring it through the t-shirt filter, there's a cadence to it. If you pour too slow, the wax will cool off and thicken on the t-shirt material, and that prevents it from straining through. If you continuously, continuously replenish, I'm going to have a moment there. Wait, I'll finish this. If you continuously replenish with new hot wax that keeps the pool that's being filtered warm enough and liquid enough, it'll flow through the t-shirt material. It's kind of an interesting, intimate moment with wax. When you spend enough time doing this operation like this, you, you start to make connections about how to do it for future encounters. Uh, coming back to the Kevin moment. I don't know if this was shared. When I do my recordings, I don't have my trays in. For a period of time, 62 weeks, I've used what is like Invisalign. 3M Clarity Aligners. I finished the 62 weeks, and now I'm in a period where they took the molds of my teeth, and they are making the refiners. I don't know how many weeks I'll wear them, but I've been wearing these Invisalign style, most people know what an Invisalign is, retainers to straighten my teeth. Never had the chance to have braces when I was a kid. The point of this is, <laughs> I have this Sally Shell seashore set, the seashells at the seashore thing going on because my teeth aren't lined up correctly 
right now. And it's so weird. I keep saying things and every once in a while I lisp like Bobby Brady. <laughs> Just, it drives me crazy. When I'm at work doing presentations and other things and, it, and this comes out, I kind of snigger at it. Anyway, moving on, kind of Kevin moment. As to the wax that was rendered, one thing I figured out early on, it's very akin, ironically, to harvesting honey. The different sessions that I did by serendipity, because I did a small batch and then I stopped and a small batch and I stopped to render the wax in the solar wax melter. It yielded different wax batches and the same thing when I was filtering it. Each batch came out a different composition. As an example, the capping wax, which we melted is pure ivory white. Pristine, absolutely gorgeous. One bag yielded a creamy light ivory. Another was a beautiful marigold yellow. That's the one I used to make the dip candles, by the way. At the other end of the spectrum, some of the brood comb yielded a dark gold to mustard greenish tint. And then a few shades in between. And it was only by serendipity that I didn't try to blend everything together because I did them in small batches, both in the solar wax melter. I did them. Sharon did a lot of the solar wax melter, by the way. And I did a lot of the filtering. It's not unlike how you can get different characteristics of honey if you separate the different boxes that you brought in from your hives. One hive, the honey will taste like this. And the hive sitting next to it, the honey will taste like this. If you blend that all together in your extractor, you would never know the nuances of it. So this morning marks the completion of rendering all the slag wax that came out of the solar wax melter. It's all organized now in zip top bags in various formats that can be used for whatever I dream up in the future. More candles, lip balm, hand cream, I need to replenish my shoe wax that I made, furniture polish, things like that. While rendering some of the wax, I started thinking this morning of what I could do with the odd stuff that has the greenish tint to it. And by the way, you have a lot of time to think while you're doing that operation. I don't think I'd make candles out of it. I wouldn't want to burn in the open air whatever's inside that wax, who knows what chemicals and pesticides and so on could be in there. I'm certainly not going to make cosmetics out of it, but I can think of some initial ideas. I think you could make beeswax fire starters, for example. I know that's a lot like a candle, but if I place it in a wood stove to start a fire, whatever nasties were in there would be incinerated within the closed space. And if I started a fire to make a campfire or something, it burning in the open air would probably not be, I'm over explaining this. There's a technique for using wax to make molds for jewelry. I think that would probably be okay. Suitable for that. And I remember a lesson at one of the EAS conferences about encaustic painting. And so I don't know if this stuff is on a 
canvas. Would that be a problem? Encaustic painting, by the way, is a form of art that uses wax as the medium instead of paint. You mix your wax with different substrates to make the colors and paint it on the canvas in melted form. And when it cools, it creates the equivalent of paint deposited on the canvas, but it's wax. I don't know. I'll have to give this some thought as about a quarter of the wax in the stash is rendered brood comb. If you have any unusual thoughts about how to use that type of wax, send me a note. I'd love to hear it. Kevin at bkcorner.org. The last scent of it to share is that there is something therapeutic about the smell of melted wax permeating the air. It has to be one of the most pleasant smells on earth. But perhaps I'm biased because I'm a beekeeper. I'm pretty confident that I have some videos about my solar wax melter, including that simple one and how to build it. And so I'll have a link to those in the show notes for you to take a peek at. Do it this summer. Do it. Go buy one of those, make it, put it out in your driveway, and you too can have some melted wax. Clean, beautiful stuff to make. Pour candles or whatever you want. It's really simple, cheap, and something every beekeeper should have. Roundtable number five. Trees feed bees. It struck me recently while sitting in a beginner's beekeeper course that one of the topics that inevitably gets asked from the audience is, if you're a new beekeeper, what plants should you plant to feed your bees? This is always an interest, and I have to admit, I'm not a plant guy. Sharon's good at plants. I have a casual acquaintance with them. I'm so bad because there's times, and she just tries to help me. <laughs> when I see a plant, and I know she's told me 20 times before, this is this plant, and I just can't, for whatever reason, retain it. It doesn't maintain in memory. And so to help this situation and to talk to you, if you're a new beekeeper and you want to plant plants, I'm going to give you a resource. It's called the Xerces Society. And Xerces is spelled in an unusual manner, X-E-R-C-E-S. The website is xerces.org. And one of the resources, which I'll have a link to, is Native Plants for Pollinators and beneficial insects and if you go to their web page and you look at the tool that they provide it's pretty nifty you can go there and choose where you live anywhere mid-atlantic region is where we are but if you go to the pollinator plant list they have guides for every state in the nation and you can filter by state I could choose New Jersey and click apply, and it'll show me those plants that apply for the mid-Atlantic region. From a plant selection standpoint, there's a number of things in there. And I was just having this conversation with Bob Kloss recently about red maple. It's one of the most nutritious pollens, apparently. I think that's what Bob told me. 
And now is the time for red maple and red bud and some of the other plants to come. And so if you are a new person or you just have an interest in planting, I'm going to share a few pointers. Number one, plant a wide variety of plants. Plant your favorites and focus on the natives. That's the ideal thing to do, but put a pin in that. Conceptually, as a beekeeper, to benefit your bees, one of the things you should focus on is when the bloom occurs. Obviously, you need to focus on what sun is required, what soil is required, and any additional details. But ideally, for a beekeeper, you're looking for bloom. Bees do extremely well when they have good, solid, diverse nutrition across the season. And so it's great to plant a bunch of things that look amazing in the spring, but come the summer dearth, it would be incredible for you to have a diversity of plants that your bees and the native pollinators could take advantage of. The next point to bring out is not so fast. I'm sorry to share this with you, but in my experience, if you planted the most amazing pollinator garden in your yard, the bees may never touch it, meaning your local bees. It's kind of funny how this works. If something's in bloom and bees get on it and they feel like this is what they want, they're going to it and they stay on it. It's called flower constancy. It's a biological genetic trait of honeybees. If that thing that they want exists off of your property, they're flying right over your beautiful, curated, manicured pollinator garden to somewhere else. As beekeepers, we need to just get over that. <laughs> Every bit of forage on our land is a benefit to something. And while you may not see your honeybees in there, you should see teeming experience with other kinds of pollinators, sweat bees and wasps and other things, butterflies. So look at the guide for the additional details and figure out which ones are good for honeybees and go that route. In time, my experience, you may not see, you know, bees coming to your particular plants for a couple of seasons and then bingo, sooner or later, you find out that your bees find what's there. And for some reason, they, once they learn it, they come back to it. So don't be disheartened if you plant the first couple seasons and expand your planting and you don't see a lot of honeybees on it. But in time, again, I think you're going to see eventually your bees will find that resource. They'll lock it in and season after season, they will eventually come to enjoy it. Now, um, I'm going to say something that would probably get me yelled at from the Xerces Society, but they want you to plant native stuff. There are invasives out in the world that we beekeepers just love. We love them because they provide food and resources and they make really good honey. At times when native stuff isn't available and or they're superior. An example might be knotweed. If the world at large who wants to have native plants 
Um, yeah, they would go eliminate all of the Japanese knotweed. They don't want it. I'm not telling you to plant Japanese knotweed. But if it happens to be on your property and you t tend it a little bit, well, that's your personal preference. But I'm just saying that there's things that are not native that have instantiated in the world and they end up providing forage for our bees. And this is the way, and this is a rationalization and not a good one, mind you, but I'm just saying from a pragmatic standpoint, all the forage for the bees that has been lost to development and agricultural practices and whatever, I'm not fussy about where the forage comes from. If there happens to be a stand of Japanese knotweed somewhere and my bees are benefiting from it, I know we should go cut it down, but I'm going to kind of think differently on that. Now, the last point and the point of this particular topic is trees feed bees. More specifically, trees feed more bees. You could plant one decent tree on your property and that single tree will feed more bees than all the plants you have on your property in aggregate. And so as a new beekeeper, if you really want to improve your craft, plant a tree. I've mentioned this before on the show. My in-laws, before we purchased the house here, planted a magnolia tree, which doesn't exist in New Jersey but they got it to work. And every summer during the dearth, that tree is just a buzz. It's astonishing how much food it provides. And so if you're on the beginning of the voyage, plant your plants, put in pretty flowers, build pollinator gardens, but plant some trees and you will find in short order, just a couple years, that the benefit of that, locust trees, Eastern Redbud, Southern Magnolia. There are all different options that you could do, and I'm sure there's plenty more. One thing to note, just covered this recently, is that the zones have changed all across the United States, the zone maps. And contrary to people who don't believe that global warming is in place, many of the zones have gotten warmer. And so from that perspective... Be careful when you're buying plants that were labeled with the previous zone map. Go and look it up as to what zone you're in and pick the stuff that's going to work. And it opens the opportunity to plant some additional things that might not have worked in your area. So Xerxes, by my way of thinking, is one of the best resources. And they have more than you could ever want to know about pollinator-friendly plant lists and information. And they have a lot of focus on native pollinators and honeybees. And if you go to the Pollinator Conservation Friendly Plant List on their website, you can see a list of plants to get started. There's another really neat thing about doing this, by the way, which is when you have a wide diversity of plants and over the years your bees start to visit all of this different thing, you see a rainbow of pollen colors. Every once in a while, you'll see a push of, say, dark orange. Right now, 
we have crocus all over the yard. Today, as a matter of fact, March 3rd, I was just upstairs to get another cup of coffee. The sun has broken and there's bees out already. It's just 45 degrees, maybe going up to 60 today. And you see this dark orange pollen coming in. That's crocus pollen. And maybe they're on the snowdrops, which just bloomed out in the front, which will be a different color pollen. I think it's like an ivory color. Skunk cabbage right around the corner. And so this diversity of healthy, nutritious pollen coming in from the red buds and other things where the trees are budding up. Yeah, all day long. Love it. Love it. So if you're new and you want to plant plants, there you go. That's the key resource that I would suggest for you. And don't forget to lock this in your memory. Trees feed more bees. Time to turn to the back of the book. Topic number one, the chair is against the wall. What we do occasionally around here is circle back to some listener mail, and I'm going to run through a couple of them, and then I'll explain the title. I exchange emails with Dixie Burmeister about the use of the seeded honey recipe that I talked about on a recent show. If you happen to be in Palisade, Colorado around the April time frame, you might consider taking in the Palisade International Honey Bee Festival. She wrote in to say that, First of all, for a number of years, the Beekeepers Association has been supporting that festival. It includes farmers markets, wineries, peach festivals, and of course, beekeeping activities, as the Beekeepers Association is an active participant. She wrote in to ask if she could use the seeded honey recipe as one of the potential recipe showcases that they would be doing in the Beekeepers booth. I think that's kind of cool, actually. And of course, I said yes. So if you happen to partake, look for Dixie, who is a chef. Pretty sure that's what she said. And she's going to be doing cooking demonstrations with another chef from the Wine Country Inn. And a little plug for Dixie is that she does Dixie's Food for Thought, a show and had a local TV cooking show on one of the stations in the past in that region. Wish her the best of luck. And hope that she's going to have a good show there. I know that we have uh, beekeepers in that area from past emails. And, you know, hopefully one of you will make the trip and tell her and said hello. For the next listener email, I'm going to forgo the name. And you'll know why as I start to tell you what was said. And I wanted to pass this along. This is the chairs against the wall. What I know is going on in the real world and as i've suggested it's in contrast to what the professional world would tell us what to do this is not an endorsement nor a condemnation of what's going on this is akin to the citizen science thing that i relayed earlier in a different segment and one of my kind listeners was nice enough to send this along Now, as it is with email formats, sometimes you take the liberty of being brief when you're writing to somebody and not very structured. You get your point across, and I'm actually going to tweak what was written as I relay it to you so the narrative makes sense. I've tried to fill in the gap and maintain the fidelity of what the person said, 
And where things are inferred, I'm going to elaborate so that you understand what the person wrote me. What I'm doing hopefully didn't change the context. It just cleans it up for the audio format. The email said, paraphrasing, I really enjoyed your OA podcast. I'm one of those who ignore the guidelines. I've been an OA user exclusively for the last five years. I did use one box of Formic last year, but honestly, it knocked the snot out of my bees. Those were a few where I used double pad applications. It was cool in September when I did it, and I had to reduce some big 10 frame boxes into a nuke box after the Formic application. I always fill my oxalic acid cups with four grams of oxalic per dose. At least one third of my colonies wash between 30 and 55 mites on September 15th of last year. I hit nine of those colonies three times in a single week, then once a week until I had zero drop on my screen bottom boards. That coincided with about Christmas pretty much the same every year. This is me breaking in saying as a matter of clarification, I think I have it right that he was saying it takes till Christmas to get the mite population down, which is interesting. Continuing on on what was written, I realize I'm only hitting one third of the mites with the dose, but it works. I was at 54 of 58 surviving last week but several were hanging on by their mandibles. And by the way, me again. The date of this email was from February 17th. Carrying on. The deadouts did not produce high mite counts, as they all happened to be small colonies. Last year, the overwinter success was 31 of 31 survivors, with strictly using OA. This fall, my counts were off the chart like I've never seen. Going to speculate that when we get to warm days, I might find a few more of my five frames did not make it through, but so far all of the 10 frame hives are doing well. So the email went on to a different topic at this point, so we'll pause there and say, I take what was written as an interesting account of what I had expressed I think is going on out in the real world. I know this beekeeper, and I know that the person's a good beekeeper. And I also know other good beekeepers that are doing the same kind of activity, which is what I was alluding to, that I think this is more prevalent as people have taken it upon themselves to go past the establishment and do their own thing. There's a part of me that thinks the researchers are just catching up with this oxalic acid thing and they're kind of behind, and the curve is really predicated on them responding to what people are doing out in the real world. This goes back to the sentiment of one segment I recorded lately, that if you look around, you can find evidences of this going on. And here it is, right in my inbox. Now granted, I was probably the catalyst for this by saying what I said, and they wrote in to respond, yeah, but it backs up the statement that people are doing this out in the real world. So sometimes people write in and I'm not sure if they would be okay with me sharing that. So I shared it anonymously and hopefully that's not a problem. 
if you heard that or hear something that I say that you didn't want, write in and let me know, and I will refrain from doing that going forward if you share things with me. I'm assuming sometimes, and by the way, there are things that I don't share, that some of this stuff is okay to share because it's two beekeepers talking about a topic. Moving on, on a lighter note, the beekeeper who shall not be named <laughs> wrote me in to tell me that after listening to me and my twin on the podcast, he now thinks Keith's the expert in the family. Listener James Lee wrote in relating his thoughts about third-year colonies based on something I spoke about recently. He said his third-year colonies tended towards higher mite loads. But it could be attributed to the fact that they were swarm kings, queens to begin with. And, you know, who knows when you capture a swarm how old the queen was when you started the box in your apiary. He mentioned there's a recent study out by Katie Lee at the University of Minnesota, I'm going to have to look it up, that showed this trend of higher mite loads in older queens. And he also shared a notion that Kirk Webster talks about this in his third year collapse and recovery. Kirk Webster, if you're not familiar with him, is a well-known treatment-free beekeeper who runs an operation, I think, in Vermont and has changed practices off and on. And if you go up and look, there's plenty of information. And Kirk is a pretty well-regarded person in sharing his beekeeping experiences. And speaking of sharing beekeeping experience, James, who wrote this email as part of SBGMI, and he also shares a lot of insights about what he's experiencing in local beekeeping and what they're doing there in Michigan as part of their presentations and seminars to the general populace. SBGMI is the Sustainable Beekeepers Guild of Michigan, and if you go to their website, Again, their URL is sbgmi.org. You'll find that they have a number of presentations for beekeepers to follow. They're running webinars. And they have a wide berth of topics in a newsletter. So you could check that out. sbgmi.org. And thanks, James, for writing in. Listener Dustin Cousins wrote in and asked a question about the idea of drones taking one for the team. He wanted to know, should you allow drones to be produced, allow them to emerge and hang out for a while, and then remove them because they're likely harboring Varroa? Dustin, that is spot on. I was postulating the theory that when drones become prevalent in the colony, they're holding the mites, and whether the mite is under the capping in a drone in development, or they're on the drones as they move around inside the colony, those mites are not affecting the larva population and nurse bees of worker bees. You could cull drone brood comb and eliminate the mites outright, or you could allow that situation to go on for a while and any of the drones that don't have mites can pick them up and therefore they are taking one for the team. If you go back to the episode, for those who didn't hear it, where this was discussed, I went through a bunch of different ways to contemplate how we might cage drones 
and take them out of the population, talking about adult drones, not the larvae. Of course, you could always do drone brood culling. The key would be to get rid of all of the drone brood and the drones in the population prior to the bees taking that step. Because every spring, summer, and into fall, the colony eliminates the drones by stopping production and dragging them out. Now, the ones dragged out, that's great because the mites go with them. But the bad news is all of the mites that are in and amongst the drone population are going to transfer over at a critical juncture, the perfect storm, to the worker colony. And you don't want that. And that's what this was about. So, Dustin, you have it right. Allow the drones to be produced. Allow them to emerge and hold on to the mites. And then find a way to eliminate both the drone brood and the drones for the colony before perfect storm occurs. Well, you know, the thing that to just call out here is that doesn't exist. We were talking about the art of the possible, but you can do drone brood culling, and that is an effective management practice. Now, before I close this out, I have to come back to the chair is against the wall. The chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. These phrases are familiar to me because I was a fan of Red Dawn, the 1984 movie with Patrick Swayze that I watched when I worked in the movie theater and saw it every day. I heard these phrases, but never really understood what they meant until recently when it came to my attention that they both have meanings. One of them was you're to muster for something that is now ready to go in a wartime event. And the other one was to signify that D-Day was coming. And I think it might have had something to do with Battle of Normandy or the Bulge or something like that. It was a signal that we were a go. There's times, like you just heard, where I try to keep anonymity in the chairs against the wall in the episode. And it just came to mind as that was a neat little thing I came across lately and I thought I'd share it. If you look it up, you can find probably factual things back to like, I don't know, President Eisenhower or somebody who came up with this during their tenure. John has a long mustache. Okay, now that I've ventured into who knows where, it's time to close this episode down. And I wanted to take a moment and say thank you for any that have donated recently, I truly appreciate any donations we get for the show. All of the money that is received, all of the donations go back into paying for the hosting. It's just looking at my hosting charges recently and holy cow, they keep going up and up and up, but I've never accepted sponsors and never uh, took payment for what we do here. I just do it out of the kindness of trying to share with all other beekeepers and anything that gets donated is um, promptly turned back into paying for what it costs to produce the show. If you look on the homepage, bkcorner.org right side, there's a donate button there if you choose. What actually helps quite a bit too is if you subscribe and say thank you in some sort of way in your podcast editor the more you rate the podcast and leave comments the higher it goes in the ratings and more people get to find the show 
An interesting aside for me is I am doing a presentation in the beginning of March at 12.30 in the morning. This came up recently where someone asked for a presentation and it's for the Big Island Beekeepers Club in Hawaii. I'm a bit of a night owl on sometimes and so if it takes staying up till 12.30 to deliver a program through Zoom, all the better. I, I don't mind. Um, guess I'm going to have to sleep in the next morning. Fortunately, I know from my schedule that I'm working from home and my first meeting the next morning is until 8.15 a.m. So at 8.05, the buzzer will go off and I'll run downstairs and sign in to my first call of the day. I noticed, and I forgot to mention this in listener mail, that Bruce Rodriguez wrote in and he's going to do a commentary. I, I don't know where he's going to take this. On my presentation that I made at Burke's Association last weekend, I presented a topic that's extremely foreign to me. Not to me personally, but to say out loud. If you follow the show, you know I'm doing a low treatment method, which is not treatment free. But I was asked to speak about how you could consider treatment options, whether you want to be full-blown treatment or go in a different direction all the way to treatment-free. And that's what the presentation was about. If you happen to know who Bruce is, you know that he's part of the treatment-free community. And I see his commentary on how people perceive treatment-free. And he said to me, he was there at the program afterwards, that, you know, maybe one takeaway of what I said, that treatment-free beekeepers will allow their hives to die. And he corrected me and said, no, they're there to let their hives live. And if some of them die in the process, that's for the greater good. And it made me think, what an interesting take on it. And maybe, yes, some of you will accuse that to be a rationalization. But the fact of the matter is, if you can get more and more hives through that process, through to survive without treatments and in a more natural state, then I have to concur that that's the right way to possibly perceive that. And so I think he might take the presentation that I did and offer his own take on my messaging just to clean up what he felt I didn't say right. And I'm okay with that. In fact, if you want to see what I presented, go to bkcorner.org, click on the link for presentations, and it should be one of the top ones there. Ironically, I was kind of asked to speak on a similar note for the talk I'm giving at EAS in July or August. It's in August. I'll be teaching about how to become a responsible, treatment-free beekeeper in a, in a roundabout way. So interesting that this topic continues to be a topic of interest to beekeepers. At least lately, I've been asked quite a bit about that. And it just so happens that with what I'm doing in my local apiary to learn about low treatment, which in summary is I am not putting treatments in the colony. That is uh, suspect in its own right <laughs> in the context of what constitutes the treatment, which was one of the discussions we had that day. But in general, I'm not putting Apivar and, and those type of traditional treatments in. I will correct the problem if I see it because I do not want a hive to live with disease and so on. 
But I'm also taking steps to try and put in very good beekeeping local stock, survivor stock, and taking measures to put and keep fresh queens in there, along with uh, splits and other things that just come as part of the normal course of operation. That's a really loose and fast description of low treatment. But I will not let it have disease and pestilence. And some of my colonies, just for notation, that are in the beekeeping apiary for the association, they're being treated in a conventional path, monitored and treated. So I have kind of a hybrid situation going on as I'm learning my ways, taking it slow, step by step. Anyway, Bruce, have at it. Have a good time. I'll be interested to see what your take on it is. And I should say that one of the things I think about is whenever you put something out, you put it out there. People are going to weigh in on it, whether you like it or not. Whether it's positive or negative, they're going to weigh in. And so the best that you could do is put your stuff out there, like I've done in this episode, and let people look at it for its merit, and they can take it and use it however they want. Okay, I think I've rambled for the last 15 minutes. Thank you if you stayed this long, and I will end the show as I do customarily. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.